1: The Telegraph.
2: Telegraph.
1: Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast.
3: In association with Line Trust. Specialist fund managers. Hello podcast fans and welcome to Total Football. A big weekend of goals, snow and local derbies in the Premier League, but who came out on top? On this week's show, we'll unpick the battles for bragging rights, whatever they are, on Merseyside and Manchester, and find out who impressed and who failed miserably will extend beyond the two local disputes of the weekend to take in a big win for West Ham, an even bigger one for Spurs and some exciting penalty shenanigans in South London. Plus, we'll look ahead to Monday's Champions League draw, which will feature more English involvement in Europe than 52% of the country would really like. But first, let's get straight into those derbies and I'm delighted to say Telegraph columnist Jamie Carragher joins us now. Jamie, how are you?
4: Yes, not too bad. Uh, I mean, really enjoyed watching Man City. Uh, commentating on that game, I think the performance is outstanding. But not as good as I'd like, considering uh, Everton got an uh, late equaliser downfield. So uh, slight disappointment, yes.
3: We'll get on to that one in a minute, Jamie. But first, the Manchester derby. City, 11 points clear now. That's it for the title race, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's not just the, the points in front at the arc. They're far higher quality than anyone else in this division. I mean, Manchester United are second in the league. And coming to Old Trafford, I mean completely outplayed and they were chasing shadows Manchester United for most of the game and there's a huge gulf now between uh, every team in this in this uh, division of Manchester City and it's looking at the, the lead that they have you can only see it being extended
3: City beginning to look like a really gutsy team as well now that's 4-2-1 wins in a row for them in the league can you see a weakness in their team at the moment?
4: Well, I mean, you look at the goal, you can see this today. Defensively, I still look at possibly left-back with Fabian Delph. He's not an out-and-out left-back. I think that's a position maybe teams, when they get into the Champions League in, the, in February, March, coming up against top sides, we'll see the draw Monday, but that could be exposed. He made a, an error today for, for the first goal. No, it wasn't just him, it was Mendy also. But that's the only real one, really, but he's not a recognised left-back, but he's still playing well. Uh but you just think over a, n- a number of games and months, could that sort of lack of experience or ability in that position come back to, to hold them? But it certainly won't be in the Premier League. That's more uh, at the top end of the Champions League.
3: Jose Mourinho, pretty frosty afterwards, talking to the media, said City scored two bad goals and United were denied a penalty. Do you have any sympathy for him?
4: No, uh, it, it wasn't a penalty. I mean, I was doing contract, called the street, I called it straight to edit. I felt it was a dive and it was just ironic We see that. Jose had mentioned uh, the antics of Man City players before the game in terms of going to ground too easily, and uh, Pereira done that, and I think Michael Oliver, he's the best referee in the Premier League, he was in the perfect position to see it, and gave the right decision.
3: Quite a poor game for Romelu Lukaku at both ends of the pitch, does he have it in him to succeed in these big games?
4: I think, again, haven't watched that, I think it's a little bit of a worry now, going forward to Lukaku, I think... He's- He would always get goals against the the lesser side. That was always a criticism of at Everton. But when he was at Everton playing against the bigger side, Everton were quite negative. It wasn't easy for them. They never had a lot of possession. So you could always have that excuse. Now, at times, Jose Mourinho's teams in these big games, we know, have sort of sat back. And they hardly had much of the ball today. But there's no doubt he's got to bring a lot more uh, to the game. And it's not just about scoring goals. He should have scored second half. But that that can happen, you know. Unfortunately, to keep it straight in the face. But there's got to be more in general play. Uh, he's got to do a lot more in terms of holder play, being a presence of the top end of the pitch, causing problems running behind. And uh, at times he looks like a passenger in these big games.
3: Is Mourinho the man to bring that out of him, to improve him in, th- in those areas?
4: I'd like to think so, because he keeps talking up saying how well he's doing, the goals don't matter. He's giving him so much support, uh, McCarthy, but I think he has to, the amount of money he spent on him. So he, he certainly doesn't want to leave him out of the team. But with Zlatan coming back, I, I don't know that will affect Lukaku. He's got the mental strength to deal with someone like Zlatan. He's been around the place, around the training ground. And I think the supporters will be calling to see him a lot more, considering Lukaku's performance yet again. But he's, he's been here three or four months now. We haven't seen a massive improvement in his performances in these big games.
3: United sat very deep to begin with. They didn't really create much all game. How big a miss was Pogba for them on Sunday? He was a big
4: miss, uh, but would that have stopped Manchester City getting so much of the ball? I don't think so. I think that's Pogba's game. Pogba's going to hurt you when Manchester United got the ball. But Man United they didn't really have much of the ball. I don't know what this possession stats were, but I know at half-time it was 75%, 25 I don't know at the end of the game, but I mean Pogba really strength is in, in possession. So without the ball, I don't think he's a great help to you, really. And I thought that like United would have been a lot more solid. Certainly in that centre midfield position with Matic and Herrera, but it was far too easy for Man City because not just the players, but also how Pep Guardiola set them up. At times there was three or four players in that position. He weren't playing with a centre forward at times. Jesus was going wide. Sterling was coming into the centre of the pitch and that's all the work of, of Pep Guardiola and this rotation of movement that causes so many problems when playing Manchester City
3: Yeah, 65% possession for City on Sunday uh, but what's it like to be instructed to sit so deep as a defender, especially when you're playing such a fluid front three that City had
4: Well it's not easy but I think when, when you play so if you have to accept really, that they are going to dominate possession. So how you can hear them when you win the ball? And the problem for Manchester United was every time they won the ball, they'd lose it so quickly. That comes from the pressure of Manchester City, of course, winning the ball back. But they were so deep, United, when they were winning it. You want to be really winning the ball around halfway line positions and then you can cause problems with your counter-attack. Manchester United, when they won the ball, still had the length of the pitch to go to to cause problems. So, I mean, I was surprised with Jose's team, I must say. You get criticism for being... Uh, not adventurous enough. So you look at the team, so you say, oh, Jose, going for it. But I just think that was leaving yourself wide open against Manchester City because it's OK having attacking players on the pitch and having four or five of them. But you've got to think, how are you going to get the ball back? There's no only attacking players that agree to getting the ball back. And that was the case today.
3: City as well did all this without Sergio Aguero. Terrifying strength in depth they've got. Is that what's going to just maintain this run, do you think, from now to the end of the season?
4: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I mean, listen, Manchester United has got a great squad, spent a lot of money, City's the same, but I think for Aguero, I think when it comes to the biggest games, I think Pep is going to go for Jesus, and Aguero will still get plenty of games, uh, but I think that extra work rate at the front of the pitch, I think he brings a lot more to the side, but I think today Aguero could have got a couple of goals, really, because how easy it was for City to go through straight through Manchester United's midfield and get arrive at the edge of the box, and so often in that first half, you were looking at City, thinking, get your shot away, get a shot off. And Steele and Jesus were taking too many touches. You think of Aguero in those positions, normally just one touch and bang, and it's getting shots off. I think he could have had some joy today.
3: Moving on to Merseyside, Jamie. Uh, classic Sam Allardyce smash and grab in some ways. What did you make of Everton's performance? And are you going to take up Sam Allardyce's kind offer uh, to explain his coaching to you?
4: <laughs> well, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to. But uh, listen. Sam and Everton can celebrate tonight. they did come for a point to a massive uh, underdog, so it's a great point for Everton. Uh, Liverpool have only got themselves to blame in the team that they picked, not being clinical enough in the game, and also giving a stupid foul away for a penalty. I mean, Everton I mean, never really, ever threatened Liverpool ever look like scorn. I think any Liverpool fan going in watching the game was ever worried, really, and normally in a derby game, even though Everton haven't got a, a great record at Anfield, there'll be some hairy moments, but uh a little bit of luck on Everton's side, but stupidity from Lovren and, and Liverpool defensively. That's something that we say a lot. And, uh, you know, they get the points. And Liverpool only have themselves to blame.
3: Take it, you think it was a penalty then, which Wayne really converted?
4: Yeah, I thought it was a penalty. I thought it was a penalty straight away. Really stupid thing to do. plays on the, the corner flag uh, with a ball, causing you no problem at all. I couldn't believe the pace uh, Lovren ran at him to try and close him down. There was no need to close him down because he wasn't about to try and get a shot off. He was away from the goal. That's just about, you know, staying with him, jockeying him, keeping facing that wrong way. Is a, a silly thing to do? Is that a
3: mental thing for Lovren?
4: I don't know. It's a mental thing. just a, a, a stupid decision, poor decision. Right. Trying to think he's got to get tight and close down in the box. There's no need to at all. Yeah. you got to know when to get tight and when to, you know, lay off. And the pace he ran at him in the box, considering he had his, his back to the goal. I mean, it's just a really poor decision.
3: It was an unexpected starting eleven for Liverpool with Solanke in ahead of Coutinho and Firmino. Was that a mistake?
4: Yeah, I think so. And it's not just saying that after the event. I mean, I think when the team she came on, it was a massive surprise. And I always think rotation is fine and and top teams have to do it. I've never criticised a manager who who does rotate and change the team because it is part and parcel of football. This this thing of playing the same eleven week in, week out, I think that's the old-fashioned thinking in some ways but a lot of rotation I feel comes from the fact that when the big games come around you want your best players and your best team ready to go and and play and and be fired and I felt midweek and and this game today were the two big games and Klopp went with his best side midweek or close to what what he felt that was and I just felt today was the same it was just Liverpool have West Brom midweek. That's the time to make your changes. Uh, certainly not today. And I think it would have given Everton a big lift.
3: Yeah, it sends a weird message to Everton, certainly. Yeah. Uh, you only lost five Merseyside derbies in your career. It was clear how much it mattered to Rooney when he scored his penalty. Could Liverpool have done with a local lad in the team today?
4: Listen, I mean, to be, listen, Wayne Rooney's got the goal. I mean, we have had, had a kick at the other the ball away Wayne had times. been a great pass for the goal. We should say that. I don't think that was something... Uh, Liverpool lacked, I just think they maybe lacked a little bit of quality trying to try and open Everton up at times with so much possession and I think at times the game became too easy and that was maybe a problem for Liverpool certainly second half because Everton never really threatened, it wasn't too difficult to keep the ball, keep possession in Everton's half so I think Liverpool maybe got lulled into it. You know how easy it was and come a little bit lethargic in that uh, second half. But one bit of quality that you saw from him was Raymond's pass to Calvert Lewin. But again, it was just, I mean, really poor decision from you, uh, lover.
3: Marnay as well guilty of a poor decision when he had a chance to square it to three teammates in the first half.
4: Yeah, and that's, I mean, if you go back to midweek, I mean, how, how all of the sort of the Fab Four people talk about interchange and, and sort of set goals up for each other, all getting goals. You'd normally expect them to just roll that across. I just think he's just made the wrong decision there. I don't think it's a case of Mane, I thinking, I'm not going to pass, I'm going to go myself, be greedy. Uh, he's obviously felt in that position that maybe that was the better option. and well, Of course, now looking back, it, it certainly wasn't. And If you, you put that in, it goes too. Much. I think it's possibly game
3: over. You wrote in your Saturday column about how most of your conversations with strangers in Liverpool revolve around football. What will the mood of the city be like this week? What will people be saying to you about this game?
4: Oh, well, Everton fans will be delighted. I'm sure they'll be all like, oh, out drinking and enjoying themselves for the next few days. And Liverpool supporters will be feeling this feels like a defeat. And being a Liverpool supporter, I'd say the same, because you'd expect to, to beat Everton at, uh, at Anfield. It's not, not always the case, but considering Everton's performance, uh, it certainly wasn't, you know, a performance where you thought, you know, they cause you problems. It's, it felt like the game is in Liverpool's hands and it was quite easy to use, so that brings more frustration, the fact that he didn't get the the three points, but Liverpool only had themselves to blame.
3: Klopp absolutely livid after the game as well, uh, does he do himself any favours when he sort of goes at journalists in the way he did afterwards?
4: No he didn't, I think he'll look back at that, I'm sure his press officer will have a chat in the morning, I'm sure there'll be a couple of apologies in his next press conference before the uh, the West Brom game, but listen, that's that's the game that we... uh, that we're in when you get spoken to straight after the game, yeah, he's probably let himself down there a little bit. There's no doubt about that. But I think when you, we want passionate managers here who wear the heart and the sleeve, that Jürgen Klopp is probably as, as big as anyone. Like that's so what times he's probably going to overstep the mark. But you know, we like seeing interviews like that. Certainly, with me now being in TV, it gives us something to talk about, and uh, it probably just shows how frustrated he is.
3: Yeah, it all makes for good podcast. Thanks very much, Jamie. Thank you. wasn't all ancient rivalries and heated local cauldrons of hatred this weekend in the Premier League. Charlie Eccleshare is on the line now to talk us through everything else that happened. Charlie, result of the weekend has to be West Ham's victory over Chelsea. Some signs now for West Ham fans that David Moyes isn't the Antichrist.
1: Yeah, it was it was great from them. Um, to use the kind of modern footballing parlance, they were at it right from the start, um, which is kind of you know what Moyes built his reputation on getting his teams to be well-organised, well-drilled. And often, you know, when he was Everton manager, they would pull off results like this. I remember meeting United at Goodison and City a few times. Um, And they they did look a lot more organised a lot fitter, and like all of them really cared about it. Um, so it was a great result for
3: them. Yeah, great to see Marko Arnautovic running over to his fans, vaulting the advertising hoarding, and then running the extra 50 metres back to where the fans sit at the uh, Olympic Stadium really heartening. Yeah, stuff. he must
1: have been knackered up.
3: <laughs> Why do we think Conte has conceded the title after that game? Do you think that helps his players, or is he sending a message to the board?
1: Well, I, I don't know. I was thinking about this and whether... I think we often think, Everything managers do is very calculated and premeditated, and, and often I'm sure it is. But I think there will be sometimes where it is an emotional response as well. And he seems like someone who gets extremely head up and emotional during matches. And I don't know if that was just an anger that had built up inside him, um, you know, and whether that will make that much of a difference in January to you know what he's able to get. I don't know, but it, but it does seem like a strange tool to use. I don't know how motivating that will be for the players to be hearing that.
0: Mm.
3: I like the idea that when you do that, you have to give away the trophy immediately back to the Premier League, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite how it works. On to your team, Charlie. Arsenal, who played Southampton and managed a brave one-all draw. Uh, again, an awful start from Arsenal, especially at the back. Why does this keep happening?
1: Well, I think this week was a little different from last week because, to be fair, the the back three that normally plays the Mustafa monreal before that, United game they hadn't conceded in seven games together. They are actually normally quite a good unit, and last week was just crazy individual errors um, that you know we had we hadn't actually seen from them really most of the season. Today was, a, I think, a different issue. Looked like one of organisation where Murtazaka and Monreal, that kind of left side of the three, they just looked to have no communication. And what Monreal was doing, which he does and what he's good at, is kind of charging forward and trying to make exceptions. And when it goes right, it's great. And normally if it doesn't, then it's sort of okay because Koscielny or Mustafi can cover. But Zaka cannot cover if Monreal's out of position. And it just looked like he hadn't grasped the fact that he was playing with Merzizaka. Um And, I mean, it was horrible to watch that first sort of 10 minutes or so where Austin genuinely have score about four times. So I think today it's a question of organization. And, and Benga, after the game, said, you know, we shouldn't talk about it too much because then it kind of gets in the player's heads and becomes a bigger issue. So that seemed to be him advocating a policy of burying his head in the sand which does seem to have been our defensive approach for about the last decade.
3: Yeah, combined age of 96 for that back three, and they really looked it in the opening phases. But uh, a goal for Giroud in the end, but excluding the Everton game, which you won 5-2. I've stolen this blatantly from your own tweet, Charlie. (laughs) Only four goals away from home so far this season. How do Arsenal fix that?
1: Yeah, four goals and two of them only from open play. Well, I think picking players on merit is something that's bothering a little bit in, in what way
3: you're you're passing over players who are in form for those of bigger names
1: I, I'm not saying that you know Sanchez and Ozil should be dropped to make a point but I do think they are essentially undroppable even unsubbable, which I think some fans find a bit odd especially given how much they clearly want to leave the club you know Sanchez is a difficult one you know he gave the ball away I think it was 32 times it's pretty awful for all of it he did though set up the goal and that is that is the the sort of quandary that Wenger and Arsenal are in. You have these players who can produce moments of magic, but often they're really quiet for the most part. So there was a period for about 20 minutes in the second half where Southampton were sitting so deep, and we just had all the ball, but we had five defenders on the pitch. And thinking, why? What is the point of having five defenders on the pitch when you're playing a team which has? Absolutely no ambition to do anything really but sit behind the
3: ball. The sad ballad of a weathered Arsenal fan, Charlie. (laughs) Moving from north to south London, Crystal Palace 2, Bournemouth 2 at Selhurst Park. But a match that will be remembered for some remarkable behaviour from Christian Benteke, stealing a penalty off his mate uh, Miljovic, who scored the first penalty in that game so well. How annoyed would you be with Christian Benteke if you were his teammate in that situation?
1: Well, personally, if that were me, I'd be quite relieved because I'd look like I had the nerve to take a penalty but then not have to suffer the indignity of actually missing the penalty. Yeah. It would kind of be win-win. But um, if I were a professional footballer who was good at taking penalties, I would be absolutely raging, uh, as I think Miljevic was, as everyone at Palace was. I mean, it was amazing. to I mean, Hodgson really went for him yeah. after the game. Yeah, he, he
3: almost looked angry.
1: Exactly. It's like you've taken advantage of this guy one too many times and he uh, he cracked. I mean, it, it it reminded me there was a Kevin Morales one, I think, took one off Leighton Baines for Everton a few years ago, and he also missed. And, and what was so weird about it was Benteke, I think, had missed two of his previous four. You know, he's not a, a really deadly penalty taker. Why he was suddenly possessed to do that, I don't know if he wanted to make a point or, you know, what was going through his head. But, I mean, I'd love to know as well what was said in the dressing room after, um, because it was just such an act of selfishness and... Stupidity, And then, above all, just such a terrible penalty. Yeah, it was,
3: it was It was so similar to Southgate's in Euro 96, wasn't it? Almost the exact yeah. same part of the goal and, and yeah. lacking any kind of power. What about Spurs, Charlie? A 5-1 victory for them at temporary home against Stoke. Um, Stoke playing a sort of suicidally high line, it looked to me. Um, Spurs kept running in behind them into acres of space all the time. It was almost like Spurs' goals didn't even have to be that good. It just seemed like a sort of simple failure of preparation and tactics from Mark Hughes. Do you think he has to look back to Stoke's traditional identity to sort out what is now the leakiest defence in the league?
1: Yeah, it's a a strange one, isn't it? They don't really look like they know what they want to be. I mean, they've, you know, Hughes, obviously, I think his brief was to come in and bring more expansive, more expansive style to what had become a very functional team. But now there is probably, you know, a bit of a yearning for a bit of that pewdust organisation especially you know when you go away to a team as good as Tottenham especially in behind and especially one of your centre-backs is Ryan Shawcross who you know he, I guess he's kind of the embodiment of that defence in a way you know he's rugged he's very good in the air but he's not, he's not the quickest um, and, and also the fact that I think now four times in a row they've played Spurs and lost by four goals so you'd think if ever there was a game to really <laughs> to dig in and maybe try something you know just focus first and foremost and not conceding this would have been it and I don't know if it was a loss of concentration they had you know some they were missing some defenders but I think they do need to work out what it is they're trying to be and maybe just consolidate for a little bit um and just try and dig in and keep a few clean sheets because it's really, you know, it, they could be dragged into it, I suppose, to a relegation
3: battle. Yeah, it certainly looks very open down at the bottom there. One team involved in that were playing in a fantastic game on Saturday evening, Newcastle 2, Leicester 3. Uh, it was a, a great finish to settle it from Iose Perez, unfortunately, into his own net. Uh, still rumbling on the takeover stuff uh, at Newcastle. How crucial is it that Mike Ashley either sells the club or commits to it before the January transfer window?
1: Well, it looks like if he doesn't, then relegation is a really serious possibility and it must be so, so frustrating for everyone involved with Newcastle because they finally got someone like Benitez in who's so eminently sensible and pragmatic and, you know, looks like he's trying to do all the right things, but he's sort of doing it with one hand tied behind his back because of all this uncertainty off the pitch. You know, he must feel really uncertain about his own future. Above all, they need Lots of new players, Um, you know, they they do look a bit like a championship side. Um, A a lot of the individuals just aren't really up to Premier League quality. And you do fear for them because they're just getting dragged further into it. Their form is terrible. And I guess the issue as well is if it's not resolved, who's really, what players are really going to want to go there? Because, you know, it is such an uncertain club and it just feels a bit chaotic at the moment.
3: Yeah, no win in seven now for Newcastle. But I, that lovely big stadium will impress some uh, some Championship <laughs> ingenues. They'll go up there and fancy that. I think
1: fictional foreign footballers like in the Goal movie. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, that's the that's the solution to all Maybe of their problems. Yeah, that could be it. yeah just sign players that don't exist. It was Burnley one, Watford 0 in the battle of the two teams that are massively overachieving this season. History suggests that one of those overachieving teams will fall away a little bit, and one is likely to carry on a little bit, and then up finishing very strongly. Which do you think is which in this situation? Burnley or Watford, Charlie?
1: Well, I think it's interesting because Watford um, have a bit of form in being the team that starts really well and falls away. I think two years ago under Kike Sanchez-Flores, that was the shape of their season. I think this year they're a little bit better set than Burnley, just because and this may be harsh, but I think Burnley are perhaps a little less varied in the way they play and I kind of feel that they may get found out a little bit in the second half of the season. Um, they also have a smaller squad. You know, they, they haven't used very many players at all. I think it's the fewest in the league actually. Um, and it's hard to see that, you know, that that's a sustainable model. You know, once you start having to play a few more games, and fatigue sets in towards the second half of the season. Uh, so I would probably go with Watford to finish the higher out of the two. Though that said, they've got six points to make up. Um, but yeah, I do, I do like the look of Watford and I think Marcus Silva's very impressive.
3: Quite. Swansea City, crucial win for them, 1-0 at home to West Brom. Plenty of people, myself included, had sort of written Swansea off, but this was a really credible win for them and so important for their season. Do you think we're in for a proper relegation battle this year without one whipping boy cut adrift, which has been the case for many of the previous seasons?
1: Yeah, I think that the fact that all three of the promoted clubs you know, got a few wins early on has meant there isn't that one team that's just terrible and you can write off straight away. There's no one at all, I would put.
3: QPR syndrome, I would call that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, or there isn't one as well, you know, you've got those lingerers like Villa and Sunderland who were kind of like, right, they've got to go down eventually. I, I guess you would maybe say Swansea are that team, but I, I don't think they're, they're anywhere near that sort of level. Um, and... I think it will be close because each week that someone wins, it's suddenly like, oh, they're they're kind of heading towards safety or they're out of the relegation zone. I mean, look at Palace, who made a terrible start. It only took them really a couple of decent results and they were right back in it.
3: Yeah, those two excellent promoted teams, Huddersfield and Brighton, faced off on Saturday. Uh, Good win for Huddersfield, 2-0 at home. Uh, The games are coming thick and fast now. It's quite easy to get yourself on a losing run. Is that busy, festive period especially tough for the newly promoted teams?
1: Oh, definitely. Because, I mean, you think the, the big teams have squads specifically designed to be able to deal with two games in a week. You know, they have, most of them have two good players for each position, the kind of model that Jose Mourinho introduced kind of a decade or so ago. Whereas that's not the case for every club. They simply don't have the resources to do that. And also, it's one thing, you know, players are happy to be the second choice right back at, say, Arsenal or Man City or Tottenham, but they're probably less happy to do that at one of the so-called lesser, smaller clubs. Um, so, yeah, that that does tend to happen, that the advantages with bigger clubs, with the stronger squads... Um, I mean, it was Ian Holloway, wasn't it, at Blackpool, who made, I think, 10 changes in a busy run of games because he said we didn't have the squad big enough to do it, and there was an outcry, and I think they even got fined or something like that. But it, it was kind of a um, a sign of the fact that the smaller clubs don't really have the squads deal with these many
3: games sounds correct charlie thank you very much for joining <laughs> us and uh, please get on now with your birthday happy birthday from the total football podcast
1: thanks very much the telegraph total football podcast in association with lion trust specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions
4: remember investments can fall as well as rise
3: We have Champions League knockout round draw to look forward to on Monday and European football journalist Mina Rizuki joins us now to talk us through the round of 16. Mina, a record five English teams have made it this far. Does this suggest to you that the Premier League is back in the ascendancy in European competition?
2: Based on the fact that obviously all five have done well, you would have to say yes, of course. You know, you, you cannot disagree that this being those sides are back and they're playing good football and especially you know with what we've seen from both Tottenham and Manchester City and even Liverpool these are signs to, sides to be reckoned with having said that other than Spurs and perhaps you could and Chelsea the others were in in groups that they really should have come through them with ease so I, I can't say, you know, I mean, Liverpool didn't exactly have the toughest group, neither did Manchester United, um, and even City, to be very frank. and Napoli, are strong, but they hardly have the funds that City do, um, or the, the the same amount of talent. So I think the the side that really did please me in the way that they played football, I would only I would say it had to be Spurs. I thought they were fantastic throughout. They were clear, they were intelligent with their tactics. They were strong. They they managed the different moments in the game very well and they faced very strong sides and came out on top and really proved their strength.
3: How are the Premier League teams regarded on the continent, Nina? Are, are there particular teams that you think the bigger European clubs would want to avoid in this draw?
2: I think everyone wants to avoid Manchester City, especially now that they've thrashed Manchester United as well. Um, they're just playing such good football and you're always a little bit scared of what a pub has up to have leave. Um, I think Liverpool's attack is scary to many, although that defence looks like it can really be got that. Um, obviously, Maurizio Pochettini always uh, knows what to do and you, you find him to be this great coach and how he recovers balance and how he finds fluidity. I think around Europe, you know, the English sides will always be the English sides. They're regarded as sort of an example to many, um, especially sort of the Italian sides. Look at them as a the beacon, the idea of football or, or the... You know, how they manage the game is something that they all look up to. The amount of money that's in the game is something they all wish they had. Um, so I guess it hasn't taken them by surprise. They knew this was going to come and finally it has and England is back with the bank.
3: Bayern Munich and Juventus are potential opponents for everyone except Chelsea in the draw. How are they getting on in their domestic competitions this year?
2: Well, obviously Bayern suffered when they had Ancelotti um, as their coach. They weren't really fond of the way that he carried out his training. They didn't feel like it was intense enough for what they wanted. Um, But now they seem to have slowly regained their rhythm under Jopankus. They showed that against PSG. They really wanted to uh, send the signal of intent to say, you know, we're still Bayern, so don't think that we're going to be any pushovers. Having said that, I can't see them being as strong as they were. They are are suffering from quite a few injuries, Um, But by February, you can have a few of those back and they they could be back to their very best. Uh, As for Juventus, they they also suffered in the beginning. They do every single season at the start of the season. It takes Allegri a while to start experimenting with his tactics because there's always a few changes. And defensively, they've conceded a lot more goals this season than they have in previous ones. But uh, this week alone, we've seen them uh, beat Napoli. Hold Inter and defeat Olympiacos to progress, and it looks like they're kind of back to being their best. And they're usually a side like Real Madrid that sort of comes into their own around February, March. And I'd say all the big teams do come into their own, so they'll all be all forced to be reckoned with.
3: Fairly frightening looking round of 16 in prospect for Chelsea. They'll play Barcelona, PSG, or Bashiktas. Would you fancy them to get past either of Barca or PSG at the moment?
2: No. (laughs) Uh, I don't don't know. That sounds harsh, but fair. Listen, Antonio Conte was, you know, one thing in Italy we used to say was he was just such a fantastic coach. But for some reason, when it came to European matches, he lost his way a bit. Um, it seems, you know, perhaps that's true considering he's the only uh, coach of, a, of an English side that came second in their in their group. I don't know, but PSG are just so good going forward. I know that Unai Emery is perhaps not the best, and we've seen them suffer against Habsburg and, of course, now against Bayern. But they are such a strong team. And, um, you know, I can see them getting one over the but Barcelona is always Barcelona, right? And they know how to to arrive when it comes, how to really play the match of their lives when its European competition. So, I don't know.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that Messi seems a decent player for Barcelona. Uh, (laughs) Three Premier League teams could face reigning champions Real Madrid, but Spurs have already beaten them this year. Is this the season when their vice-like grip on the trophy is relinquished?
2: No, not necessarily. Honestly, last season, they won at their very best, and yet they still won the trophy. And you almost felt that they were still playing in second year and that they didn't really, you know, push it off that extra level. They don't necessarily have to. They're just a team that has the experience and the intellect and and the talent required, and perhaps even the winning mentality, to get through these. These tough matches, even when they're not at their ultimate best, the way that Barcelona have been or Bayern have been when they've won the trophy themselves, and also there are a side that have won a lot over the last two seasons, and you can understand that there's you know a lack of motivation. All they really need to do is just you know just navigate their way through a tough schedule, and they're doing that. They're on point in the Champions League. Again, I think at March time comes. You know they'll give up on the league by then. They're already too far behind to be very frank. I mean, you could say they're two clasicos, but you never know. But if they they do falter, then they'll put all their effort into winning the Champions League just to make history three in a row. They have the talent, and really, is there a side in Europe that looks like to be that much better or has the experience that Real Madrid has, other than PSG and City? I'd say it's, it's got to be Madrid, look like a tough opponent, even if they don't look so now.
3: An exciting draw in prospect, then. Thank you very much for your time, Nina. Thank you. Time now for our hero of the week, and few are more deserving of that title than Fan Supporting Food Banks, a partnership between two supporters groups from Everton and Liverpool who are collecting outside Anfield on Sunday. Chairman Dave Kelly joins us now. Dave. In a time when these derbies are more hyped and heated than ever, how pleasing is it to see fans of both clubs come together to support a cause like this?
0: I think it's it, it's absolutely unique. Um, I, I wouldn't have thought that there would have been any fan-supporting food bank um, going on in Manchester or anywhere else between neighbouring clubs. I think... That's one of the big advantages we've always had in this city that there's a tendency for Scousers to do things jointly, to do it together, and particularly in terms of adversity. And I think Evertonians take a great deal of pride and satisfaction out of, um, out of support from Liverpool, right through uh, the whole of the Hillsborough uh, disaster. Uh, one of the proudest moments I've ever had at Anfield watching the Liverpool team run out uh, to Z Cars uh, after uh, Rhys Jones was brutally murdered on the uh, on the streets of the city. So, yeah, I, I think fans in this city will always come together and they'll always work together uh, for the greater good of the community.
3: And have any of the players been involved as well?
0: Absolutely. I think one of the things uh, that makes fan support and food banks work is both clubs uh bought into who who and what was actually attempting to do. Um we've gone from current players to former players, we've gone from chief executives of the football club, right down to people who work on the gates and the people who work in the concessions. Um at the Derby the the Merseyside Derby at Cudderson last season, even Merseyside Police collected food and donated to the food bank. And this this is something that the whole of the football community can and should be embracing
3: great stuff Dave very heroic work congratulations
0: thank you that's your lot
3: for this week's Total Football thank you as ever for joining us are you enjoying what you're hearing please let us know via the medium of an iTunes review you can also contact me on Twitter if that's your online bag at Tom with an H Gibbs the top act Polvo supply our theme tune get yourself to mergerecords.com to buy their music Thank you to Abby Patterson on the buttons, and thanks to you via company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers. New to Telegraph Sport and Your Ears is a brand new podcast celebrating England versus Australia. Ashes to Ashes reflects on one of the biggest rivalries in sport with exclusive interviews including Jeffrey Boycott, Jason Gillespie, Michael Vaughan and many more. Just head to your nearest podcasting service and click play. Simple, just like working out Duckworth Lewis.